Good morning. How is my family doing today? Good. Awesome. The section over here is relatively awake. The rest of you are working on it, and that's fine for me. Um, they have uh, added a new challenge for me uh, right now, which is great, as if it wasn't hard enough to just stay within the confines of this square area. Uh, they have put shrubbery all around me. And so if I fall off the stage, uh, please forgive me. Don't worry. I won't stop going. Those in the front row, you just push me right back up, and we'll, we'll continue on, all right? If that's a deal, then I think we are good to go. Well, for those who don't know me, my name is Eric Upton. I'm the middle school pastor here at Bridgeway Christian Church. I'm honored to be here with you and, and diving into Scripture and God's Word and, and sharing these things that uh, the Lord has laid on my heart uh, to bring before all of you. So um, with that, I'd love to open with just kind of a story that happened to me recently. I like starting off with stories. gives you a chance to know me a little bit better and also laugh at my pain. So um, here's uh, something that happened recently. My family and I, we were actually invited uh, by a friend of ours from this church to go on vacation with them. They have a timeshare uh, down in the beautiful land known as Palm Springs. And uh, I have to say, this is probably one of the most ingenious decisions I've ever made with my life to go on vacation the week before Christmas, um, in some senses anyways, because I don't know if you've ever been to Palm Springs in the desert, um, but in December before, but it's beautiful down there at this time of year. Like it was 80 degrees at one point. It was fantastic. I swam in a pool on like December 21st. Did anyone else swim in a pool on December 21st? I don't think so. Not unless you were in Palm Springs with me, in which case I'm sorry I missed you, but it was fantastic. My family, we went down there and, and they had this beautiful pool that they heated to like 85 degrees. And my kids would go down these little water slides and my middle child loved this little water slide that they had. It would shoot her down at like 90 miles an hour and I would catch her and bruise ribs upon occasion. But it was great. We had tons of fun. We went out to pizza and, and ate at this really uh, great restaurant down there. And then um, we also went to the world's largest dinosaur museum. I don't know if you know that that exists uh, near Palm Springs, but it does. If you've ever traveled down the 110 towards that area, you notice that there's a giant um, brontosaurus out of nowhere just wandering aimlessly in the desert. Well, that's the world's uh, largest dinosaur museum. And I got to go there. And it was, it was pretty cool and fun to watch everything be experienced through uh, the eye of my children, but if you've ever uh, gone on vacation before, especially with small children, you understand that vacationing with small children, um, it's wonderful and it's great and it's filled with all kinds of amazing experiences, but then it's also interwoven with moments of sheer terror and, and screaming and anger and, and exhaustion and all kinds of weird stuff where, you know, you go from one moment where you're celebrating life and then the next moment you're contemplating the many uses of duct tape on small children. So, you know, you, it's hit and miss. And then you add to that the fact that when you go on vacation, you typically have to travel by car from point A to point B, and point A and B never t seem to be so far as in those moments when you're trapped in a vehicle for six to ten hours at a time with small children that are at the age of three months to three years. If you've never traveled with people of that age over the course of a long distance, let me tell you, it's like experiencing the seventh circle of hell. Um, <laughs> I, I kid you not, it's terrible, especially when your youngest, like mine does, hates his car seat with the fiery passion of a thousand burning suns. And, and that's the truth of my youngest son. So uh, we found ways to get around um, his hatred for car seats and, and travel. And so what we devised was the plan to leave at an ungodly hour. And uh, what we did is we packed up all our stuff the night before our vacation began and we stuck it in the car. And then um, at about 3.30 in the morning, we woke up, got 
got the kids in the car and drove down towards the Palm Desert area and everything worked out great. A seven and a half hour trip took about 10 hours. And to me and my wife, that is success right there. So, you know, you can clap for me later. But uh, we made it down there, had the vacation, and, and it was great. And then the night came for us to go ahead and make our way back home. And it worked so well the first time, we decided that we would do the same process again, coming from Palm Springs all the way back to Sacramento. So that night, we began the process of kind of getting our things together and, and packing things up. And, um, you know, we were up a little bit later than we wanted to be. We wanted to start a little bit sooner, but it was what it was. And so we're putting things in suit cases and the kids are kind of jumping around and and getting their last bits of energy out. I had uh, two TVs on in our hotel room uh, because there was a football game on and I happened to be involved in a very important fantasy football league to me that involves all of my in-laws. And um, I was facing in the playoffs my mother-in-law who was beating me by one point, one little point. And I needed one person to catch one ball throughout the entirety of two quarters and he couldn't do it. But that's neither here nor there. I'm not upset about losing to my mother-in-law in fantasy football. Anyways, the game had ended and, and I was more intentionally packing now um, with more frustration, but I was packing and uh, things were going okay. And it came to the point where all the luggage was ready. And so I had to walk outside and go um, uh, through the, the hotel parking lot and underneath to where they kept their luggage dollies. You know, those inventions that they created so to make the appearance that they're trying to help you bring your luggage from point A to point B. But in actuality, they are zero value whatsoever because out of the five that were available, of course, I grabbed the one luggage cart with the obstinate wheel on it. And so I grab that cart and I drag it all the way into my hotel room and I get it there and I begin to load my stuff on it. And the kids are still running around and doing what they're doing. And my wife is feeding our youngest child. And as I get everything loaded onto the luggage cart, I realize, okay, now I have to get this cart with all my stuff out that door. So I open the door and there's only space for either the luggage cart or me in that area before the door. And so as soon as I turn to grab the luggage cart, I notice the door shuts behind me. So I open the door and I try, you know, this game right here and that never works. And finally I get the luggage cart positioned to where it's in between the doorway and the door. And I'm about to make my way through and head out and take my stuff to the car when I hear my beautiful and amazing and loving and gracious wife call to me and say, Eric, I can't take it anymore. You need to come in here and help me with your children. Now, I don't know if you realize this, but whenever you hear stories about children and someone begins the story by saying, you'll never guess what our kids did today. Well, it's usually a good thing. You know, it's like, oh, you'll never guess what our kids did today. They won the Nobel Peace Prize. Oh, well, that's fantastic. What a great accomplishment for the day. But if anyone ever starts out a story and they say, you will never guess what your children did today, there's never a good story that's going to follow. Never, ever, 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 ever. Because at some point during the story, whatever that child did will be directly linked back to your genetics. And that's all you need to know. And my wife called to me and said, you need to come help with your children. So I did what any husband would do in my position. I pretended not to hear her. I'm just kidding. I didn't do that. I thought about it, but I didn't do it. So I turned around and I walked into the room and there I find my wife who's got her arms full with my son as she's feeding him and my two girls are jumping on the bed repeatedly screaming in the form of a pterodactyl lyrics to their favorite Disney Frozen songs. 
And I come in and I begin to help out and I get the girls a little bit more calm and they're finally laying down in bed and, and their eyes are kind of starting to become heavier and, and they're quiet now. And I turn to my wife as they're mildly resembling the angels that they so frequently are 24-7. And I say, is this okay? Are we good now? Can I go take our stuff back to the car and, and finish, get us packed? And, and my wife turns to me and says, yes, I think, I think we're okay now. I think the girls are going to go down and, and I've got uh, your son just almost ready to go down as well. So go ahead, finish packing up. So um, I turn, I walk out of the bedroom, I walk past the kitchenette and I walk towards where I left all of our stuff and I notice that something is slightly amiss because I see the door and it's open and I see the doorway, but no stuff. There's the door, but no stuff. And I turn And I holler to my wife and I say, babe, where's our stuff? To which she logically responds, what do you mean? To which with equal logic, I respond, where's our stuff? And I hear my wife get up off the bed and say, you're kidding me. And it's amazing how quickly in one little moment, so many thoughts can rush through your head in a brief period of time, isn't it? Like, you ever thought about that? Like, a moment of, of sheer tragedy or, or scariness or whatever happens, and like, you just get this flood of thoughts and emotions all at the same time. In that moment, I kid you not, it was unbelievable how quickly the thoughts that built up in me and the emotions that built up in me caused me to turn from mild-mannered, devilishly handsome Pastor Eric into some version of the Incredible Hulk mixed with a cage fighter seeking righteous retribution to the poor fool who has taken my stuff. Because after all, let's face facts here. Whoever it was took my stuff. They went into my hotel room, grabbed my obstinate luggage cart, and drug it out of my room filled with my stuff on it. And in that moment, I cared not what else was going to happen that evening. I was going to receive justice upon that poor soul. I determined in myself that with clenched fist, I would run out of that hotel room, track them down, and beat them to within an inch of their life, not just for taking my stuff, no, but for the obstinance of the luggage cart I had experience, that disobedient door that would not open properly, and the fact that I had lost fantasy football playoffs to my mother-in-law by one point. And they took my stuff. So I run out of the room. I kid you not, those were all the thoughts that I had. I run out of the room, my fist clenched, puffed up bigger than I ever had been before. I run around the corner and past the elevators because in my mind those elevators are too slow for anyone to sit and wait with someone else's luggage for. And so I determined they had probably scooched it all the way outside. And I was ready to bolt out the hotel room doors, track them down, tackle them, and whatever else happened after that I'm sure would be in a blacked out daze. As I'm turning the corner, out of the corner of my eye, I see something that resembles a luggage cart filled with luggage. I put on the brakes and I look for further information and I notice, indeed, that is my stuff on my luggage cart. And I turn to go towards it and as I turn, I notice that standing next to my luggage cart is the man who invited us on the vacation in the first place holding a cell phone, giggling like a schoolgirl because he had found my luggage in an open doorway in our hotel room and couldn't help himself but to take it and watch what happened next. 
tears almost in his eyes with sheer joy at my reaction as I was sprinting barefoot through the hotel ready to pound somebody. Oh, he thought he was so funny. My wife came around the corner, looks and sees who it was that took our stuff. And she says, I could kill you. And then turns around and walks back inside the hotel room. Fortunately for me, he was only working on getting his video camera ready and he had not yet had time to do so. There is no video evidence of this, so don't go looking for it on social media. And he did the right thing and helped me load it into the car, but he laughed the whole time we were doing it. That is an embarrassing moment. But isn't it funny how quickly we run into moments of seeking justice for the causes we think deserve it? How quickly we cry for and desire and demand justice be had against those who have done wrongs in our eyes or towards those that we care about. We go through this process when we feel like we've been wronged and attitudes and mindsets and these desires eat at our hearts like a cancer as they build up within us. But in moments where an injustice has been incurred by us or those that we care about, these thoughts populate in our head. We begin to ask, where is my justice or where is their justice? How can this type of a thing be allowed to continue and allowed to go on like this? Where is justice for them? And we compare. We have an attitude of comparison that asks, how can this person get this for their crimes and they only got that? How is it that I had to deal with this, but they only got that? That's not fair. That's not right. That's not just. And this game of comparison begins to be played in our hearts and in our minds. And then we condemn. Those who do this or live like that or are okay with this or choose to do that. Well, they deserve this. Anyone who would be a part of that, anyone who would condone this, anyone who would think this or have this as a value or this as an attitude or live their lives in this way, well, they get what they deserve. And how quickly we cry for grace and mercy when we ourselves have wronged another. How deserving of grace and mercy do we feel when the wrong that was done was done by us? How rapidly do we remind others of their need to provide the type of grace that our Lord Jesus provided when we're the ones that did the wrong? We ask, well, who are they? Who are they to tell me that I'm in the wrong? Who are they to say that to me when they're the ones that did something similar? Who are they to come at me with that attitude? Who are they to look at me with those eyes? Who are they to talk down to me like that when I know this about them? And we compare. Well, mine is not like theirs. Theirs is far worse. Well, they were the ones that started it. I was just there. They were the ones saying everything. I I, I may not have tried to stop it or, or stand up against it, but I wasn't the one leading the whole thing. I wasn't the one saying everything that was said. I wasn't the one doing it necessarily. I was just around. And we condemn. They're just like the Pharisees. They're too religious. They're a fanatic. They're taking Scripture too seriously. 
And perhaps it's been missed, the reality that Christ is to all the world, both justice and mercy wrapped into one. You see, his justice and his mercy are inseparable. They are permanently and forever linked like two sides of the same coin. We cannot have one without the other. And for many of us, we struggle with this because they seem as though they would be two opposing facets. It seems right to think that you can either have justice or show mercy. Even the language that we use causes us to think these things. We talk about seeking or wanting or bringing or handing down justice, and yet mercy should be shown or given. People should be merciful. How then can both justice and mercy be bonded together in such a way? How can justice and mercy be held together so inseparably? I believe Christ shows us the example by which his church must strive to follow. In a world that is starving for and deprived of the richness of Christ's justice and mercy, what would it look like as the church to live out justice and mercy simultaneously? We must understand that Christ's justice and his mercy are not in opposition, but are complementary of one another. See, no one has ever lived so justly that they no longer needed to be saved by the grace of God. And yet so often we focus on how to convince, convict, and condemn others of their sins in hopes that they might know the God who would show them mercy. We convince ourselves that if we can convince someone else to walk away from their sin, then God would accept them. If only they would stop this activity, if only they would stop this action, if only they could quit this habit, if only they would turn from this lifestyle, in order, if only they would change this viewpoint, well then they would be more willing to come to God. Then I could convince them and show them before God and they could experience his mercy. It is impossible to live so justly that we no longer are in need of God's grace. Likewise, we nor others can truly receive grace for things we have not first been found guilty of. The fill in the blank in front of you is this. God's grace does not negate his justice. God's grace does not negate his justice. We begin in John seven fifty three, and we'll move all the way through John eight eleven. And this is what it says. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. 
go and from now on, sin no more. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we come before you and as we dive into scripture, Jesus, would you reveal your character and your nature to us today? God, would we understand your justice and your mercy and how linked they are? Jesus, would we seek to know you more and better resemble you with our lives? Father, we press into you this morning. We ask that you would come nearer to us with your presence. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we begin to go through this story together, there are some things that we have to cover right off the bat. Some of you may have noticed in your Bible as you were reading through this uh, a footnote or a tag that uh, was centered around this particular section of Scripture. And, and it probably said something to this effect. The earliest manuscripts do not include John 7.53 through 8.11. And there's a really, really good reason for that. It's because they don't. You can write that down if you'd like. It's very important. You see, when the earliest copies of the gospel were found and compiled, what they had did not necessarily include this particular part of the story. You see, as we compiled the gospels and brought those together, the earliest manuscripts and the most dependable manuscripts all come from before the 6th century. This particular story is not found in the manuscripts that were found that dated back to before the 6th century. This particular story occurs in later manuscripts. So that caused some questions, and it caused for the scholars to do some important research in order to determine what this story was all about. And what they found was incredibly interesting. Here's what they noted. As they looked at this story, and they realized that this may not be found in the more dependable and earliest manuscripts, it is found in the others. And as they looked at the language, they discovered that the language used in this particular passage is in line with the language that the other gospel authors had commonly used. It was common to their language, even though it didn't date early enough to their original writings. What they also found was, is this fit well within the story of the gospels. It described Jesus's character, his nature, and his ministry really, really accurately. It fit in line with all the other writings and teachings and notes about who Jesus was, what he did, where he would have been, and what he would have said in these times. Types of circumstances. Now, as they looked, their next problem was, well, where do we place this then? Because in the manuscripts that they did find it in, what they tend to found was that it wasn't in the same place in all of them. What they discovered was that in some manuscripts, this would be placed after John 7, verse 36, or in chapter 21, after verse 25, and others had placed it in Luke, chapter 21, after verse 38. But even though it's found in those places in some of the manuscripts, as they studied the language, as they studied the history, as they studied the context, they ended up deciding that the best fit for this story is right where we find it in our Bible. The reason why is because some of the language in this story is common to the author of the Gospel of John. In the way that the Pharisees addressed Jesus, in the way that Jesus addressed the woman in the story, all of these fit with how John wrote his Gospel. Not only that, but if you were to look at verse 52 in chapter 7 and then look at verse 12 in chapter 8, you would notice that to transition from 52 in 7 and into 12 of chapter 8, there's this weird, awkward gap thing going on. If you were to just go from there and there, you would notice that it seems like there's something missing here, like something needs to be placed. And that's what the uh, scholars found and why they placed this particular story where we find it today. 
And so knowing that, it gives us some context as to why they put that footnote there and why yet this story still remains where it is and can be credible and found to be doctrinal truth within our Bible. So here's what's really interesting. As we begin in verse 53 of chapter 7, it says this, they went each to his own house. Now, John 7:53 is the closing of one story as well as the transition point into another story, the story of the woman who was caught in adultery. And in order to understand this, we have to sneak back into chapter 7 a bit and take a look at what was going on contextually and culturally within the society to really get what was going on. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, you remember Pastor Lance taught about this Feast of Tabernacles or this Feast of Booths that was going on. He also taught about the interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees that was going on all the time during this feast inside the temple and how the Pharisees and Jesus were getting into arguments and finally the Pharisees got fed up and so they hired these officers to go and arrest Jesus on behalf of the law. But they weren't just normal officers. These were officers who knew scripture forwards and backwards so that they could charge Jesus with something publicly and bring them back to the Pharisees to be tried. Well, the officers go and approach Jesus and as they listen to him, they realize, oh my goodness, No one has ever spoken like this guy has before. And everything that he's saying doesn't have any lies in it. We can't find any grounds to charge this guy with anything. And they determined amongst themselves they would rather be in trouble with the guys who hired him than with the guy who is actually God. And so they let him be. And they returned back to the Pharisees. The Pharisees accused him of being, or the officers of being on Jesus' side. And then they started arguing with one another. One Pharisee stood up and and said, isn't it customary that we have a trial before accusing someone and and before allowing them to be punished and put to death? And they began to accuse him and said, who are you? Are are you from Galilee or something like he is? Which kind of makes them seem more dumb because if you think about it, we know that Jesus was not indeed from Galilee, but from Bethlehem. So we end that story and it ends here in verse 53, transitioning everything and saying that all those who are arguing with one another are now leaving and going back to their own home. But what makes this so intriguing, as I mentioned earlier, is the things that are happening culturally that surround this story. We talked a couple of weeks ago about this uh, festival of booths or or the festival of tabernacles, if you will. And and Lance talked about it a couple of weeks ago. And if you weren't here a couple of weeks ago, I'm going to go through it right now. And if you have no idea who Pastor Lance is, don't worry about it. I'm Pastor Eric and that's all you need to know. All right. (laughs) So here's what it looks like. Jesus was a master at using cultural climate around him to proclaim the truth of who he was. And what surrounded this event was one of three giant feasts that the Jews celebrated each and every year. And this was the largest of the three feasts. Every year it was mandated that if you were a Jewish male above a certain age, you would travel from wherever you lived back to Jerusalem for this festival. Some people would travel weeks in advance just to arrive in time and do the preparations needed to, p- to partake in this festival. They would gather branches and palm fronds and all these things, and then they would arrive in the city and they would set up these makeshift temporary booths. And these things would go up everywhere on rooftops, in the streets, all throughout the temple itself. All these little tents would pop up. And it was an incredible sight to see. It would be like if you traveled down your street at home and all your neighbors were putting tents on their roofs and front lawns and everywhere and you decided to join in with them. Sounds odd, but hey, it's fun. Everyone else is doing it. Why not, right? So that's what was going on. During this festival, they had certain traditions that took place throughout the festival. 
One of them was this. On the first day, you moved into your booth, and then was a Sabbath rest day. In fact, they added an eighth day to this festival because the whole thing was a week long, but they added an eighth day that was also a Sabbath rest day. In the midst of this festival, every single morning, a high priest every morning would be joined by Levites and they would sing these uh, praises as he would walk down with a golden pitcher to a nearby pool from the temple to this pool. He would fill the pitcher up with water from that pool and then walk all the way around the temple through the southern water gate and back into the temple where he was joined by another priest who was carrying another pitcher of wine. The two of them would walk to the altar. They would pour their drink offerings into silver funnels that would release the liquids together onto the floor inside the temple so that everyone could see on the last day of this on the seventh day the entire people would gather together they would walk around multiple times the temple and and also the altar and they would sing praises with branches in one hand and fruit in another as they would sing the praises from psalm 113 to psalm 118 as a large congregation and crowd as these drink offerings were poured out inside the temple Not only that, but on the first night, on the first night, it was tradition to erect these four giant menorahs inside the temple courts in the court of women or where the general assemblies would happen. And they would light these things. And the stories say that these were so bright, it felt like it was daytime inside the temple whenever these things were lit. Every sabbatical year during this feast, they would read the entire law of Moses in the middle of the week. And you have these customs and these traditions, and they become the backdrop to this story, both in chapter 7 and then leading into chapter 8. And here's what it gives light to. Take a look at this. This is absolutely incredible. In John uh, chapter 7, verse 19, Jesus says, Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? This is in light of the Jews having just read through the entire law of Moses. Jesus brings it back up and uses it to point out his accusers and point back to himself. And then not only that, but in verses 37 and 38 of chapter 7, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. On the last day when the offerings are poured out and people are giving praise and singing from Psalm 113 to 118, truths about a coming Messiah, Jesus turns to the people and he says, I am the living water. The menorahs that were erected and lit inside the temple that everyone saw every night as they celebrated, it's in verse 12 of chapter 8 that Jesus stands before them and says, I am the light of the world. Jesus was incredible at taking culture and spinning it around and pointing it to the one truth that he was. It was unbelievable. And it's with this that we look at this story of the woman who was caught in adultery with everything that Jesus had stirred up. Verse 1 of chapter 8 says this, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. So here's Jesus coming again to the temple, and this time after the feast has ended, but it's still fresh in everyone's mind. The Bible tells us that it's early in the morning. In other words, the sun has not yet risen or it was just starting to rise, mostly dark upon the city. And Jesus arrives early into the temple. And with everything that happened in chapter 7, every time Jesus came into the temple, he would say or do something that would cause a stir, that would be almost earth-shattering. And so when Jesus walks into the temple this time, 
people take notice of it. They gather around him immediately because they don't want to miss out on whatever it is he's going to do or say next. This is likely the ninth day if you're tracking from when the feast started to where Jesus walks back from the Mount of Olives into the temple. It's likely the ninth day, the eighth day, the Sabbath day, the last one has happened. People are gathering their things, they're collapsing their their booths and, and packing up to head back to where they came. But Jesus comes early enough to where it's before the sacrifice, before people have left, before everything's finished and unpacked, and they begin to gather around Jesus. And he begins to teach them. Verse 3. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? First off, this is the only time in the entire Gospel of John that scribes are mentioned. So who are they? Scribes were guys who were in charge of translating, writing, and keeping track of not only the law of Moses, but also the common Jewish traditions. They were guys who, like the officers, not only knew Scripture forwards and backwards, but these guys knew it inside out and upside down as well. See, the Pharisees were hatching a plan, and their entire plan in their minds revolved around the law. And they were going to trap Jesus using the law. And just in case Jesus thought he might trick them, or use fancy words to sway them, or convince them that he wasn't in the wrong, they were going to bring the one group of people who could stand there and prove him wrong and go against him and cement their plan in victory. Now it says that, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. The word caught literally means in the act. In other words, the people who are bringing her before Jesus had caught this woman not based on someone telling them about something that had happened, not based on a rumor of something from the past, and not based on a simple and unfounded accusation. No, these guys bringing her to Jesus literally caught her in the midst of sexual activity with a married man. And this begs the question, how did they do that? I mean, typically, adultery or an affair is not something that people have access to as it happens. If two people are going to engage in extramarital affairs, they're going to do everything that they can to do so secretly or in private. And yet somehow, she was caught. You know what else is interesting? In Leviticus... And in Deuteronomy, both of those say that not just the woman, but the man involved in the affair needs to be stoned to death as well. Where's the guy in this story? Why was he not caught? How did he get out of this embarrassing ordeal in front of everyone at the temple? And we begin to see that there was a lot of intentionality behind this plan, wasn't there? It wasn't by accident that they stumbled upon this woman and this man in the midst of an affair, catching them in the act. And how intriguing is it that they only bring the woman? I mean, think about it for a minute. They bring a woman in front of Jesus knowing this about him. Think about who it was that made up a good portion of the followers of Jesus Christ. 
As you read through the Gospels and you track with his stories, you'll notice certain characters seem to come up over and over again. And a good portion of those characters happen to be what? Women. Jesus was followed counterculturally by a large population of women who were being taught and educated by him. And in this society, women were no greater than a piece of property. They were not allowed to have education. They were not allowed to go many places. They could not walk around with their head uncovered. They were pieces of property, good for breeding, good for managing a household, and good for a husband. And that was it in the common society. Women were only allowed into certain areas of the temple. They had something called the court of women. That was not a place of exclusion for the women. It was a place that signified how far the women could go inside the temple. In other words, if you were a Jewish man, you could pretty much go into the deepest parts of the temple other than the Holy of Holies. If you were a Jewish woman, you stayed in the court of women, one level inside from the Gentiles. And these Pharisees knew that about Jesus. They knew who made up his population and his followers, and they brought to him the woman. And they drag her in. And it's easy to see the entire thing was a setup from the start. And perhaps they worked something out with the guy and in exchange for his participation in this affair, they would allow him to go unharmed. Perhaps they've blackmailed the young woman and then double-crossed her. Perhaps they got her drunk and then pulled the old switcheroo. We don't know how they did it, but they did it with extreme intentionality to put Jesus in the most difficult position that they could, pitting him against his followers or the law. And either way we look at it, in order to bring this type of an accusation up in this way, there had to be at least two eyewitnesses present and willing to testify. So the very fact that it was happening publicly like this tells us that they had amongst them at least two people who were witnesses to the affair. The scribes and the Pharisees pushed their way through the crowd, leading the woman, barely dressed, head uncovered, and bruised into the center of the crowd. They press, present her to Jesus with a humiliating and degrading accusation. Teacher, they said sarcastically, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. This time they believed they had him. It was an impossible situation and they had him cornered in it. You see, if Jesus were to answer and say, let her go, show her mercy, it would provide them or provide him and his entire ministry to be against the law of Moses. He would have to publicly reject the law that everyone knew, a law designed to bring justice to those who would attack the sanctity of marriage, to provide justice against those who would attack the community, the neighbors, the family, and the kids. If Jesus offers grace here, it would show him to be against God's law. But if he were to uphold the law, if Jesus were to say, yes, she is guilty, put her to death, everyone his ministry was built around would turn and leave. No longer would they be able to trust that Jesus was for the sinner. 
a man who was followed counterculturally by a large population of women and tax collectors and zealots and criminals and seen with prostitutes and cripples and lepers would no longer be looked at as their savior, but as the one who turned his back on them and would allow them to die because of what the law said. And watch what Jesus does here. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. As they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. See, Jesus is still sitting at this point. And without even acknowledging them or making eye contact with them, he lowers his head and he begins to write something in the ground, in the dirt on the very floor. And the Pharisees have to get angry at this point at Jesus as they continue to press him and urge him for an answer and require his attention. Jesus continues to write. Why are you sitting there continuing to write? What are you writing down? What is so important that you can't even look at us and deal with this sinner? What are you doing? Won't you respond to this? Everyone here is waiting and all you can do is play in the dirt. It shows what kind of teacher you are, a teacher who doesn't have answers, one who won't agree with the law when it plainly says that we should kill her, that we should stone her, and you just want to play in the dirt like a child. Tell you what, it's about time you answered. Answer us or everyone else here will know that you are a false teacher, you are not from God, and you are a fake and a phony. And they press him, and they press him, and they press him. And finally... Jesus stops riding in the dirt and he lifts up his head and he responds to them. He says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And then he bends down again and continues to write in the dirt. Now I know what you're probably thinking. What was in the dirt? I gotta know. You know what's funny? This is the only place in all of Scripture that ever records the writings of Jesus. The only recorded writings of Jesus were in the dirt. Probably intentional on his part. I mean, no one was sitting there with their iPhone that could walk up and be like, we're probably gonna need this later. Save that. That didn't happen. Jesus wrote stuff in the dirt and no one bothered to memorize what it was that he wrote in the dirt. We don't have it. And people have speculated about what it was that Jesus wrote in the dirt. And I'm not even going to share with you what they speculated about because it doesn't matter. He wrote it in the dirt, a temporary substance, so that it would be a temporary thing and not really carried on. And the reason why is because the people who are watching and waiting, didn't react to what Jesus wrote in the dirt. They reacted to what Jesus said and what Jesus did. That's what is important for our focus to be on. Now there's a couple of things here. It was customary to have the witnesses of such a crime be the ones to throw the first stones. And knowing they were somewhere in the crowd willing to testify means that they heard what Jesus said as well. And Jesus says that anyone who is without sin can begin the process of taking this girl's life. 
And this wasn't just the calling into question the motives of the Pharisees and scribes. It wasn't just the calling into question the shady way they came about the catching this girl in the act of adultery. It was about placing the responsibility of proclaiming righteousness squarely on the shoulders of her accusers. Jesus is saying, okay, you want to be in charge of justice? Then you better be sure that the justice you deserve has been paid out first. So you want to be the ones who determine right and wrong and hand out punishment. You want to be the ones to determine who deserved justice and who deserves mercy. Let me show you how it really works. You all are in violation of the law and you know it. You all have committed a sin, not just in this little ordeal you've concocted here, but all throughout your lives. The justice you're calling for isn't limited to this girl because of the type of sin she committed. This justice that you're calling for is one that says all have fallen short of the glory of God and the wages of all sin is death. So if that's how you want to play, then we can play. Tell you what, we'll make a deal right here and now. Any of you who is willing to stand up before everyone here in the middle of God's holy temple and say, I am without sin, go ahead. You be the first one to throw the stone. Any takers? And it got real quiet, real fast. Because no self-respecting Jew would ever be willing to stand up publicly in the temple of God and say, yes, I have no sin. It wasn't going to happen. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus returns to his seated position and continues to write on the ground. And one by one, beginning with the oldest, the accusers and the crowd begins to leave. And soon it's just Jesus standing there with the woman. And as it is with all of us, the woman finds herself in the presence of the Savior. Her sins have been laid before him. She is ashamed, embarrassed, and broken waiting for the justice she deserves to be brought down upon her by the most holy God. And Jesus stands up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Jesus stands back to his feet, to meet the woman where she has been left and asks her, where are those who condemn you? Where are they that brought these charges and these sins against you who were calling for justice to be served and wanted to see punishment delivered for your sins? The woman looks around and sees that it's only the two of them and I imagine with tears in her eyes, she sees that her Savior Jesus would not require her to pay the price of justice for her sins but would offer her mercy instead knowing that soon he would pay the ultimate price that justice required. And here's the point. Do we think that because we have received grace through the price of justice having been paid on the cross for us, that we now get to sit in a position to hand out justice with the very same grace that was given us? We act as though if we could convince others to do less of the things that separate them from Christ, then we too would be on the side of right and just. 
we think that if we can convince others that the changing of their lives, the changing of their sins, the, the stopping of their habits, the stopping of their wrongdoings, that is what will save them and bring mercy upon their lives. We like to categorize others, don't we? We love when we can place someone in a box that puts their mistakes, their sins, their wrongs as worse than ours. We feel a sense of being a justice bringer when we stand up on social media for issues like Christian rights in schools or when we rally against issues involving buzzwords like choice and love as we point to scripture as validation for condemning others. We hide behind cliches that affirm publicly that we love the sinner and hate the sin, but the truth is we love feeling like we are in the right and they are in the wrong. Now let me clarify something very quickly here. I'm talking about an attitude and a heart that condemns people with an attitude that makes us think that we are just and right in having that attitude or that heart or that mindset. I'm not speaking towards natural consequences that come from the choices that we make. We live in a world and in a time and in a place where consequences are a natural part of our lives and the choices that we make and a very necessary part. I'm not saying that people should be free from consequences for poor decision making. That's not the justice that I'm talking about. We have a government, we have a world, we have a natural order where consequences come for poor decisions and wrong actions. What I'm referring to is the heart and mindset that we as believers often become trapped into of wanting to deliver and determine justice and categorization of other people and their lives based on choices, decisions, and values that they have without realizing the justice that was paid on our behalf and the mercy that we have received because of it. I think sometimes we forget that a price was paid for our sins with the same man's life who paid for other people's sins as well. If we are the ones who accepted him and claimed to follow him, don't you think that it's time we start acting a little bit more like him? Jesus is for us both justice and mercy. And it's through his sacrifice that our sins were justly paid for. And because of that sacrifice that he freely offers us mercy. No sin of yours or mine or anyone else's comes with a sliding scale of deserved justice. The wages of all sin is death. No amount of sin prevention will ever change that in you or me or anyone else. So why do we still stand hypocritically at times telling others that the key to their lives being saved is to stop sinning in the way that they are sinning? If Christ accepted you in your sin, you better believe that he's willing to accept them in their sin and redeem them accordingly as they follow him with their lives. Our role is not to promote justice in the form of condemnation and accusations. Our role is to spread Christ's justice and his mercy throughout the whole world. To tell the world that in spite of our sin, Christ has paid the price. Justice has been served and mercy has been given to all who would follow him. And in light of this, all of a sudden, justice takes on a new definition. All of a sudden, we start looking at the term, at the value, at the idea, at the mentality, at the heartbeat of justice differently. Jesus Christ is now for us and the world, the new definition of justice. And we bring this justice not as condemnation for the world that lives apart from him, but as a way to redeem them once and for all to their creator and savior. And in light of this, in light of this, it becomes our heartbeat. It becomes our mindset. It becomes our attitude. It becomes our purpose that we seek Christ as justice in the lives of orphans, 
that we see Christ as justice in the lives of widows. We see Christ as justice in the lives of the sinner, in the lives of the adulterer, the murderer, the cheater, the liar, the sexually immoral, and all who are in need of a gracious Savior. We aim to bring the justifier into the lives of others that through faith in Jesus Christ and his redeeming grace, they would be justified from their sins and into a relationship with him. We know that through his grace and justice that they too would go and sin no more. Now as a church, our desire has shifted from using guilt, blame, and shame as a way of leading others into Jesus into something completely different. We do not desire any more less sin, but more Jesus. We desire not less crime, but more Jesus. We desire not less divorce, but more Jesus. We desire not less sexual immorality, but more Jesus. We desire not less substance abuse, but more Jesus. We desire not less idolatry, less consumerism, less domestic abuse, less poverty, less hunger, less anger, less hatred, less selfishness, or less greed, but more Jesus. We desire not less sin, but more Jesus. We desire more Jesus because the prevention of sin justifies no one. The limitation of sin saves no one. The advocating of sin or less sin redeems no one. The convincing of someone to give up a particular sin restores no one. The only way to salvation, redemption and restoration is through one man. And he is the way, the truth, and the life. And his name is Jesus Christ. We desire not less of the sin that separates us from Christ in the sense that upon its removal, all can be made well and right. But we desire the one who makes all well and right to come in and bring justice into a broken and sinful world, knowing that only he can redeem it. We should be known as a church that seeks justice through the redemption of lives in Jesus Christ. Allow me to say that again. We should be known as a church, globally and locally, that seeks justice through the redemption of lives in Jesus Christ. Christ. That should be what we're known for. People should look to us and say they are about justice because people have been redeemed and restored from brokenness and desperation into a loving and faithful God and Savior, and I want that too. We should be known by that. And we should be known as a people of justice and mercy, unlike the world has ever seen. Amen? Amen. Amen. So here's what we'll do. I want to take the next two minutes and I'd like to challenge you in an opportunity of growth and community to turn to the people next to you and answer two simple questions in two minutes. What did you hear or learn from God today? And what do you want to do about it this week? Take two minutes with the people around you and answer that question. Ready? Go. Man, 
How wonderful are the sounds of community building and growing together. I did not want to stop you, but I'm going to. I apologize, but some of us are hungry, myself included. So with that, I pray that you would find accountability and community and inspiration and life through what was shared here this morning, that you would go through those doors and more accurately reflect and resemble the life of Jesus Christ as he has laid it upon your heart. Would you close in prayer with me? Father, we love you and we give you all praise. Holy, holy, holy is our Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Jesus, we give you all praise. God, we ask that as we leave here today, we would leave in view of your justice and mercy and how we can bring that into the lives of others. God, that we would bring this hope and this ministry of hope into the lives of the broken and the desperate and the needy and the wanting. God, that we would more accurately reflect and resemble who you are. That we would be a church that is known for bringing justice through the redemption of lives in Jesus Christ. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Have a blessed week. Thanks.